Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode 104 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you doing, my friend? Brave new world, Leslie. Brave new world. And I'm not referring to the short-lived show on Peacock. Yes, you, Peacock. You're correct. That's where Peacock. Brave New World was. I was briefly going to say HBO Max, but it could be any one of them. Who knows? Who cares? I mean, originally developed for USA. It could have been them, too. Brave New um, World. But yes, um, I, I actually slept last night. It felt like I had a giant anvil removed from my shoulders. <laughs> Well, we'll see. I am not sure that the anvil is removed from any part of me, but, you know, the world feels slightly different, and we'll see if that's actually meaningful or not. <laughs> right. Well, I, I don't feel like I, there's someone in office who wants to take away my rights, so there's always a plus when you don't feel that way. Well, you know, what do you say we just dive right into headlines? Indeed. We will talk, we will talk more about some things political in a segment or two. Leading off this week in renewal news, Bridgerton will return for a second season on Netflix. Saved by the Bell has also gotten a second run over on Peacock. Snowpiercer was renewed for a third round at TNT. And BBC and Netflix hit Peaky Blinders will end with its sixth season. You can also listen to our interview with Tracy Wigfield all about all things Saved by the Bell from episode 95. Uh, on the development front, a Dungeons & Dragons TV series is in the works at Entertainment One with John Wick creator Derek Kolstad attached to pen the script for a live-action fantasy drama. Okay. And Riz Ahmed has signed a first-look TV deal with Amazon. And make no mistake, that Dungeons & Dragons TV series is going to be a big, big deal. We're talking about how beloved Game of Thrones is, while Dungeons & Dragons has a considerably bigger base. Over in streaming news, CBS All Access will be rebranded as Paramount Plus on March 4th. And Paul Feig's brilliant one-and-done Freaks and Geeks will finally make its streaming debut on Hulu on January 25th with the original soundtrack. Yay. Uh, in casting news, Ethan Hawke will play the villain opposite Oscar Isaac on Marvel's Moon Knight series for Disney+. Plus. You can go back to the records to see all of the fun things that in the past Ethan Hawke has said about superhero shows. Let's just say not so much a fan previously, now a little bit more of a fan. Also, if you, <laughs> if you haven't seen his performance in The Good Lord Bird, he is absolutely fantastic. Well worth watching. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. 
Leading off this week, all eyes were on one show this week, the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Biden has pledged to be a president for all Americans. His remarks were filled with hope, at least from my vantage point. And I heard from several folks in the industry that they had tears in their eyes watching as Kamala made history and listening to Biden's call to, quote, end this uncivil war. Dan, I don't know about you, but for me, it felt a little bit like New Year's Day, a return to normalcy. And I'm going to quote uh, Sam B from our interview a couple of weeks back. Just bring on the boring white dudes, bring on the boring press conferences. It, it just feels like we're just at a point where we're not waking up wondering what horrors the president has tweeted um, and that that era seem, you know, of. I'm not even going to try and describe it. It just feels like like a start to a new era where we have a grown up in the White House. And I don't mean to offend any of our right leaning listeners. I'm just speaking from my own personal vantage point. So I I think that without any question, it was a saner inauguration day. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And also, I don't think there's any doubt that it felt saner because you don't need us to tell you what the past two previous Wednesdays had been about. Uh, you've probably seen the you've seen the memes around the Twitter where people are going two weeks ago, insurrection, last week, impeachment, this week, inauguration. Um, and, uh, you know, just I don't think there was anyone in America. Let's 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 unify right here. I don't think there was anyone in America who looked at what happened two weeks ago and felt like it was good on any level. Well, I'm sure there are those people, but I I don't care about offending those people particularly too much. If you thought what happened on January 6th was good, you pretty much suck. Uh, I got nothing else to say on that one. Um, but, I, you know, so so let's just say we can all rational, sane people agree that was not a good look for America. I think that what happened this week was better. It was calmer. It didn't really feel like an inauguration the way we know inaugurations to be. The fact that the Capitol Hill area, that the D.C. Mall area, that they were all shut down and that instead of hundreds of thousands of people or tens of thousands of people. There were a lot of waving flags for the most part. That was the look they decided to go with because, look, for security reasons, no one was going to be able to attend this inauguration in normal ways. For COVID reasons, no one was going to be able to attend it in normal ways. And so it, it looked and felt different. You know, for me as a TV critic, the visual vernacular of the impeachment was an atypical event, and it was constantly reminding you this is this is not normal, but also this is not the past four years. So those two things simultaneously, um, I thought that Joe Biden's speech was was good. I, you know, we we do give him sort of grading on a curve credit for complete sentences, for rhetorical devices. You know, there was alliteration in a couple places. There was figurative language. He quoted St. Augustine. I mean, you know, we we give him extra credit points for those things. And it's just, you know, the, the bar is so was so low that we're just celebrating. You know, like I, I watched, you know, the, the first press conference, the White House press secretary, you know, and and. I like she vowed to bring truth and transparency back. And I, you know, as, as a journalist, my heart melted and I'm just like, say, say more, talk more. 
in that case, I would say that the bar, while it is extraordinarily low, I think we all need to do better to not be obsequious in celebrating that the bar has lowered to where it is. The sheer amount of ass kissing for that press conference in which nothing really substantive was said. Let's let's sure. not pretend as if that was a wildly candid, um, brilliantly journalistic showcase. The journalists in attendance asked some really dumb setup questions and the new press secretary answered them relatively straightforwardly. It just happens that the first press conference we had with Sean Spicer was him lying about the crowd size at the inauguration, basically. Right. So so when you have that as what the precedent is, yes, anything looks better. I, I do think, though, that everyone should be careful about being too rhapsodic about occasionally having a press secretary who tells the truth, because guess what? It's not going to happen forever, and it's just going to become a different variation on spin. So we all need to continue to speak truth to power regardless of who it is. So right. let's- and obviously hold the new administration accountable for doing everything else. So. Exactly. Yeah. So so that so that's something that I that I would love for my Twitter feed to do better in in future days and weeks. And if there are daily press conferences, there will get to be an opportunity for that. Um, so, yeah, let's let's not pretend as if the world has become this magically transparent place. It's just perhaps slightly more transparent. So hold truth to power. There, there were just good moments during the inauguration. There, there just were. I thought Lady Gaga did a, a wonderful uh, Star Spangled Banner because she is, you know, a fairly talented person. Um, I I thought J-Lo's This Land Is Your Land was an odd song choice, but she was good. And then, uh, you know, the, the hero of the day, there, there's no one saying otherwise, is Amanda Gorman, who was the, uh, the poet of inaugural record. And... This and is an a, L.A. native and an L.A. native who went from, I believe, 25,000 Twitter followers to over a million last time I checked in the space of 24 hours, which is not the kind of thing that happens on our social media all that often. She was wonderful. She made me cry much more than anything else associated with the event, her poem, and also just on a very basic level, people being excited by the idea of poetry. <laughs> is something that that makes me pleased. Um, I, I like people talking about poetry. That speaks well for us as a society if something like that happens. So, yeah. Um, did you watch last night's uh, big we don't have a we can't have a ball and therefore we got random people to perform in random places uh, showcase event? <laughs> I tuned in a little bit late. We stopped. I turned off the TV to make dinner, but I tuned in right when they were doing the Seasons of Love Broadway tribute, which is perfect. So I'm a giant redhead. But um, yeah, I, I watched the rest of it. And, you know, my wife and I definitely had a little dance party in our living room to Katy Perry and enjoying all the fireworks. And just it felt to, you know, to me like a really just wonderful celebration and like getting to see the, the Bidens in in the White House celebrating and, and you know, Joe Biden hold, holding his, his grandkid and Joe Biden dancing along. And it was just it to me, it felt like a perfect end to a day that that for me anyway, was filled with just endless hope and optimism. And I just 
I hope he's boring and I hope he's effective as hell. And I hope we don't need to talk about him. I, you know, like that, that to me more than anything, it's, it's in all of these cases, uh, whether it's Saturday Night Live. I hope Saturday Night Live doesn't need to do a weekly Joe Biden parody at the top of the show. I, I don't need to I don't need to see that because I would love to just have it be a forgettable thing. I, I hope that I hope that John Oliver and Samantha Bee and Trevor Noah find something new to be angry about. I hope that they continue to once again, truth to power. Everyone should do that. But I hope that whatever it is, I hope it works. I, I hope that I hope that the country returns to some, you know, I don't unity is such a a strange word and everyone's throwing it around and you you look at a lot of the pundits on the right and their version of unity is not an actual version of unity. I don't know about unity. I just think there is a way that the system is supposed to work. The system did not particularly work for the last four years. The system had not worked fluidly previous to that. It is not as if Donald Trump broke the system. The system was a mess to begin with. I would love to see some degree of sanity and boredom reign so that we, at least on this podcast, never need to talk about this again, or at least can avoid talking about it more than, say, a couple times a year. It should be it should be like baseball. It should be something where we do it, where a handful of our listeners wince and know that they can fast forward through a segment. But also, we like talking about baseball. I'm not sure how much we really liked talking about anything political. So <laughs> no, no, it, it's like comparing apples to Ferraris, Dan. <laughs> I sit here in my Dodger hat saying all this stuff, of course. So anyway, yeah. yes. So so let's hope for boredom. Let's hope for non-catastrophic. Let's hope for I don't decency, know. a return decency. to normalcy, a national, a, a unified response to the pandemic. Yeah, there's I just want to see I want to be able to hug you again, my friend. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Remember so, our last recording in person um, where it was, I believe, you and I and, and Pamela Adlon. Definitely like, Pamela Adlon, I think, was the last person who we felt comfortable hugging in person. I mean, we had like the the awkward like elbow bump at the end of that. And we're like, should we be doing this? I don't know. I, you know, think, like, it's, I think it's going to be I, a while. I long for those days, Dan. I think it's going to be a while before we get to hug a podcast guest again. But anyway, so, yeah, I would I would like to not need to talk about political things on this podcast. And I'm sure that some segment of our listenership would also love to have that be the case. And so let's all knock on wood and cross our fingers for sanity. Yes. Well, up next, we're going to talk about it a little bit more. <laughs> Number two. Up next, as the Joe Biden era begins in D.C., it's officially a new era as well for cable news networks. Joining us to break down the changes ahead is Vulture West Coast editor Joe Adalian. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Dan and Leslie, hello. I like that we've transitioned to the Joe Biden and the Joe Adalian era, so all is well. Though it was always the Joe Adalian era, wasn't it, Joe? Mojo, mo problems. Or some, <laughs> wait, no, that doesn't make sense. Mojo, no problem. There we go. There you go. You know, Joe, get, get us started here. You know, we've seen news networks like CNN and MSNBC and even Fox News experience significant ratings and financial gains covering Trump. CNN, for example, recorded its highest viewership in history the day of the Capitol riots. How will the regime change in the White House impact the cable news networks going forward? 
Well, if we're allowed, I can't say his name, but uh, a man who used to run a big network named CBS uh, once famously said of, of the former, thank God we can say that, former president, he may be bad for America's, but he's great for us. And there's no doubt that in terms of uh, profits and, and ratings, uh, the last president was indeed a, a major boon to cable news. Uh, mostly CNN, MSNBC, Fox News also did very, very well. Obviously, uh, they were already doing very well financially, unfortunately. Um, and, and you know, I think it's impossible to say what the immediate impact is going to be, or the long-term impact is going to be. Uh, I think in the short term, I think there's going to continue to be lots of interest in what's going on in Washington. I think uh, the partisanness of this country has become such and, and and we're so much more tuned into what's going on in the world thanks to the pandemic and the last White House that I think I don't think the ratings and the viewers are simply going to disappear, but eventually they will fade. And when that happens, uh, you know, there's going to be a reckoning because, you know, while he was president and while these ratings were sort of soaring, um, as you both know and have covered extensively, I'm sure here, linear ratings were going through, uh, they were f- f- collapsing. Cable news sort of avoided that reckoning. Eventually, it's going to, to face, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come for them as well. Uh, and will there be as much of a decline as we've seen in some linear entertainment networks? Maybe not. News is a little more um, ratings proof in the fact that, you know, uh, you can't, stream your news, uh, you know, three days later, you know, you have to sort of watch it in real time or else there's not much use for it. But uh, the ratings are going to go down. And I think the whole idea of cable news simply being cable news is going to have to change. Well, the recent narrative, though, has been that Fox News has begun to finally see some hit coming off of all of the I don't know, disinformation campaign by our former president about how they're no longer good. They aren't what they used to be. Are are the rumors of Fox News's decline or even demise, are they exaggerated or is this actually something that somebody should be worried about at Fox News? And they just had layoffs this week, too. Let's not forget. I mean, given the fact that Rupert Murdoch has started aggressively making changes over there in terms of layoffs and and and, and uh, according to reports, um, you know, putting in more opinion hosts in, in, in different hours at a uh, I, I think clearly someone is a little worried. Um, I, I'll say say this: their prime time continues to be very strong, based upon just general baseline numbers. Uh, what's happened in the last few weeks and months is that CNN, in particular, has surged uh, as as people sort of who aren't always tuning in news and aren't hyperpartisans are are watching TV more. Um, um, and but MS but but and, and MSNBC has definitely had a lift. They go up and down depending upon the news events as well. Fox News, they just their primetime hosts are still getting their three million viewers, which, you know, except at the best of Trump times, uh, you know, was sort of the average, three to three, three to four million. Sometimes they do a little higher if Trump was on one of the shows like Hannity or 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 Tucker Carlson, they sometimes would spike. His news conference helped things spike. Coronavirus briefings helped it spike. Um, you know, some of their daytime numbers have definitely gone down. There have been some smaller competitors that are probably stealing away viewers at the margin. So they're, you know, losing. And and that's not completely, uh, you know, and that can be, you know, a 10% decline in ratings that can, that translates to some serious money. Um, but, you know, I don't think Fox News is in danger of collapsing anytime soon, well, sadly. Go, going off of that, though, off of the smaller more niche networks that you mentioned. I mean, I assume that's sort of the Newsmaxes and OANNs of the world. Are we at a point where we can actually see how substantive the real audiences are for those networks? Because I think a lot of us would like in our hearts of hearts to believe that they're really and truly 
so small and so marginal that we don't need to be disturbed by them. But should we be? <laughs> uh, probably a little bit. Um, look, I don't I don't spend a lot of time, I'll be honest, uh, studying the ratings of, of these networks. It's not my jam. Um, but I have looked a little at them. And, you know, uh, Newsmax in particular can 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 flirt with uh, you know, 800,000, 900,000 million viewers at, at their top. Um, that's like below the low, just it, Fox News rarely goes below a million viewers in a given hour, even in the in the in the overnight hours or, or, or morning. I mean, they, maybe they do it in the overnight hours, but, you know, most of the day they're they're you know, from 7 a.m. till till midnight, they're always at over 1 million, sometimes over 2 million. And then they surge into the 3 million plus come prime time. Um, uh, so that's not nothing, given that, OAN, uh, that given that Newsmax doesn't have the same sort of coverage. Uh, what's also we don't know, though, is both of those networks have very strong digital presences. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're available on, on uh, free video on demand services like Pluto um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, the Roku channel. So make sure to write those companies and say, why are you putting this propaganda on my, because, <laughs> uh, and then they do. They they provide they make it very easy even before they were on cable I th so and we don't know what the measurement numbers are there um, so so yeah it is and that's going to be the problem for Fox I mean the fact is you know we talk about cable news wars and etc we have two as I noted in, in my newsletter last week we have two news networks on cable CNN and MSNBC Fox News is an entertainment it is an entertainment channel that calls itself news and has news like abilities and does have actual a couple actual reporters however biased they may be so it is a news operation but it's not really a news channel that's not the main mandate to inform people it's to, to spread propaganda and yes that's an opinion but i think the facts back that up um they haven't really had much competition in that space that's been legitimate in the way that CNN and MSNBC sort of divide the audience, right? They, they sort of, one reason why MSNBC or CNN are often behind Fox is because they're splitting that audience of people who sort of want relatively generally unskewed news. Well, now in the unhinged, you know, propaganda space, Fox News has a couple of serious competitors who were given lots of amplification, lots of exposure, people who never even knew what they were suddenly had their 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 messiah Donald Trump saying you should watch these channels they're better than Fox News well that's like that's a marketing campaign I mean that's better than a Super Bowl ad right and they got that every day for a year so um, now Fox News has a couple competitors now do those competitors continue to live uh, without Trump constantly giving them a plug probably not they're going to fade too uh, but you know, that genie's out of the bottle. And so there's now a chance for them if they get more funding, if they get, you know, some rich conservatives, uh, you know, like the pillow guy, uh, just sink some money into them or Trump himself, if he has any money, actually. We don't know that he actually has any money. So he might have a few dollars left. You know, then maybe they, they become more serious competitors. I don't think Fox News is finished by any means. And I think they're going to continue to be the voice of the, you know, irrational opposition for, for the time being. But So now that we have a, a return to normalcy, in the White House in terms of you have regular press briefings and people who are vowing to to return to truth and transparency in this administration. How are these cable news networks changing to address the new regimes? You know, we've we've heard that, you know, there's some key changes in terms of the White House correspondence. For example, CNN promoted uh, Caitlin Collins to replace Jim Acosta. Women are also overseeing the White House coverage for CBS News, ABC News and NBC News. Are there, can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing on air in terms of the changes uh, underway now? Yeah, I mean, you're seeing um, basically a little bit of a return to normalcy, um, you know, 
people on the right will say, aha, well, now the liberal media is going to relax and isn't going to be aggressive. I, I don't think that's going to be a problem. Um, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see, though, that especially at CNN and even MSNBC, where they've thrived on outrage, especially the last year, year and a half, uh, they won't have that as much. And if they start seeing the numbers coming down, uh, they're going to say, well, where do we get our conflict from? I think some of the key anchors, like, you know, Rachel Maddow had an audience uh, when Barack Obama was president, um, and it was a sizable audience. It went up under Trump, um, and it may come down a little bit, but she's going to, she's she's has a base, and that's going to continue. Um, the question is, do cable news networks find a way to sort of find new ways of being outraged to generate interest? Um, I think the bigger problem for them is figuring out how to pivot away from cable. Cable news, as far as I'm concerned, can't just be cable news anymore. It, it has to meet viewers where they are. Um, and, and, and that doesn't mean just sort of, you know, having clips on YouTube or having a strong social media presence. Um, you know, you can't just subscribe to CNN or MSNBC. Right now, they're part of cable bundles. You you can get versions of them on, uh, you know, you can get programs at different times that are delayed. But because of the deals that these companies have with cable operators, protect exclusivity, you know, you need to be part of a cable bundle. And and that makes that's sort of okay for these networks because their audience is older and more likely to be cable subscribers, but that's quickly changing. Even people over 50 and over 60 are dropping cable packages, but they, a lot of them are still going to want access to cable news. Um, and I feel like there needs to be a way for these uh, networks to make themselves available to those viewers. And, you know, does that mean that CNN becomes part of HBO Max or becomes part of the, the free version of HBO Max that's launching later or the reduced cost one that's going to have advertising? Um, you know, Peacock uh, has a version of NBC News called NBC News Now that's also available on a whole bunch of other platforms. Uh, but to me, that seems like a waste of money when the real thing that needs to happen is MSNBC needs to be available for people who don't have cable. Is that going to happen? I don't know. Um, I, but I do think the whole challenge of how do you keep viewers interested is going to once again be a challenge for these networks. But they've faced that before. Uh, before Trump happened, you know, cable news rating, ratings regularly went up and down based on what was going on in the world. If there was a time of lots and lots of interest in news, Ratings went up, but if there were no, nat no natural catastrophes, no poop cruise, as remember the poop cruise, uh, that was a Jeff Zucker special. <laughs> uh, in case you don't remember, it's when there was some sort of I think, well, I actually I don't even remember what it was. But Dan, do you remember what the poop cruise was? I just it was such great branding. Yeah, I remember the punchline, not the uh, not the specifics of it, other than that cruises are horrible and no one should ever go on a cruise. Uh, yeah, but it was just basically Je Jeff Zucker basically just found a way to sort of and relentlessly covered this thing of in completely inconsequential uh, meaning. Uh, and maybe that'll be a good thing. Maybe it's great if we finally can have cable news overplaying something that does not matter at all with zero stakes. And it may be disgusting, but it'll be normal. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm not a cable news producer. I don't know how you keep the outrage going. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see if a lot of the people who were radicalized uh, by Donald Trump on the, on the left, uh, people who became resistance warriors on Twitter and, and elsewhere and in real life and hit the streets, if they remain engaged, if they remain interested. I think a lot of them will. I, I, you know, I think Chris Cuomo um, on CNN, who's had an amazing uh, 18 months, part of that was Trump, part of it was COVID. Uh, but he got viewers into his show in a way that they weren't before. I think a lot of them are going to stick around. Not me. Yeah, I never I, liked him, but I that's mean, just me. I, I, I have personally never been someone who spent a lot of time watching cable news networks. Um, and within the past, you know, dur during the pandemic, CNN has been my default, you know, and for the past 20, you know, like we're recording this now Thursday afternoon and 
I had CNN on all day long yesterday. And if I was at my computer, I had it on, I was streaming, you know, CNN live. And I've been watching, you know, Chris Crow. I've been watching Don Lemon. And this is something that it just, I, I guess I'm I'm becoming a cable news viewer now uh, is what I'm saying. But it's just it, I think you're right that there's a, a big question of will people like me who have come in because of the outrage meter and saying someone be outrage, you know, like I'm in quarantine. Right. Like who can you know, aside from, you know, my wife and I discussing and being equally outraged, who else can I share that outrage with? And it's become a source of being seen and feeling seen and like, yes, you said what I'm thinking. Yes. You said what I'm thinking. And oh yes. You know, that, you know, like it, it, yeah, it makes you feel a little bit less alone. That's what, guess, per- that's what, what Perler is for. Leslie, no. come on. Oh, God. No, Dan, no. <laughs> well, I guess the, I guess the bad news, good news for cable, uh, the bad news for our country and the good news for cable or TV news uh, is that, you know, the Republicans seem intent on not hating the new president's message of, of unity. Uh, and if there continues to be a whole bunch of division and outrage, and people on the right doing what they're doing, uh, then sadly we could be in for another year or two or three of, of lots of drama and lots of weird things happening. Um, hopefully COVID will start to fade in the next six to nine months, uh, but I think there's going to be um, definitely plenty of interest in what's going on. And I think people who sort of were turned on to cable news during the pandemic, uh, they may watch less of it going forward, but I don't think they'll completely abandon it, or at least enough of them won't, that I think I think the cable news networks in some ways will still be better off than they were before this all happened, which sounds like a very horrible, cool thing to say, uh, but it is a business reality. Uh, meanwhile, I need to get you uh, onto MSNBC because I, I think uh, you, you, should, you you need to be watching uh, Joy Reid and Rachel Maddow and Nicole Wallace. You'd love Nicole Wallace. <laughs> Sorry, this is just, I, I have a sponsorship deal with MSNBC, so I have to put in the plug. <laughs> I actually don't. Although they did send my mom an MSNBC mog bag, MSNBC mom bag, uh, when they had that campaign a couple of years ago, and she loves it. So. Oh, you are, you are deep in the pocket of big MSNBC. That uh, is... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Big peacock. <laughs> you told you need to disclose that, which I guess you just did, so it's entirely okay. MSNBC, it's Comcastic. <laughs> So oh my God. I feel like the Sorry. big question, if we're asking you to put on your prognostication hat, is the question that everyone's really probably been asking for five years, which is where is the guy who used to live in the White House going to end up next? And, I, you know, and I feel like the stories sort of go around with different variations each time. The is he going to start his own news network? Is he going to glom on to somebody's news network where he can just do an hour of programming a day and be done. Is he going to start a political party or is he going to go back and host a new season of The Apprentice? What is your guess if you had to guess? Because you have, you know, I don't want to say you and our former president are good buddies, but you have an established relationship with the man. Uh, that's you know I'm no Mike I'm no Mike Schneider uh, your <laughs> colleague over at, at Daily Variety uh, he managed after I left Variety to go out to lunch with the Donald uh, uh, which I never got the honor but anyway I did get to go out to lunch with Merv Griffin though which was awesome um, so that was good and and uh, Casey Kasem we went once as well that was pretty cool too Ooh, that's awesome uh, Donald Trump I just got a few phone calls and letters from and uh, just which made me realize he was insane um, uh, perhaps uh, in terms of uh, Trump. Uh, 
you know, perhaps Jeff Zucker convinced him to launch a line of, of, of poop cruises that they could cover. I don't know. Um, I don't know what the former president is going to do. Uh, I, I truly don't. Um, I, I, I think it'll be something where he doesn't have to work that hard. Um, so I don't think it'll be a daily show, which is something that Rush Limbaugh has also said. Uh, I hate to quote him, but, uh, you know, I think the work I think involved in doing a daily show is, is too much. Um, he could do an hour long, you know, sort of, uh, maybe he could though. I mean, if he just has to go up and put on a microphone and just talk for an hour, he could probably do that pretty well. Um, I mean, don't forget after he was fired from apprentice, he, there was that rumor that he floated that he was going to have his own syndicated, uh, daily show. Yeah. Which of course never materialized. Uh, the question is, I you know he's so toxic right now that I don't think any establishment uh, news organization or entertainment conglomerate would touch him with a ten foot pole. Uh, that's just not going to happen. A Even twenty foot pole. Except, I mean, may, on the other end, though Fox News on the other end, maybe they would. You know, if he could reconcile with them, I I could actually see Rupert Murdoch doing that uh, because he 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 truly doesn't have any shame. But I don't think he needs to. I don't think he needs to spend the money. Um, you know, I don't know. I I'm, I'm trying not to think about him honestly, Dan. And you know, I think he you know. You know, apparently he left a letter for President Biden. Maybe that's a sign that, you know what, he knows it's all been a ruse and he's just going to sort of try to stay out of jail. You know, Um, uh, Mark Burnett, uh, our former friend who uh, executive produces the, uh, the Survivor and did The Apprentice. And basically turned Trump into a, a reality star. He helped. I, I would argue Trump was already a reality star. I mean, you watch him on Joan Rivers' show or Barbara Walters 30, 40 years ago. I mean, he was he was, he was was before we had what we call reality TV now. He was sort of a, his own character. He was – I worked at the New York Post for a few years. I mean, he was just – he was he was an established figure. Uh, but definitely reality TV sort of made him much bigger than the New York, New Jersey, tri-state area stardom or, or, or Regis and Kelly. Um so I don't know. Um, I, I, I think um, I, I don't know how much money can be made off of Donald Trump at this point. And that's that's. Um, yeah. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us this week. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this was great. You can sign up for Buffering, Joe's newsletter about all things streaming over at Vulture.com slash Buffering. Number three. Up third. Netflix reported its fourth quarter earnings this week and blew past some expectations. And now we're about to talk about stock prices and debt and buybacks. I don't know what buybacks are, but I'm vaguely aware that it's a thing that Netflix might be doing. Uh, Leslie, let's give the kids some sense of what Netflix reported in its fourth quarter earnings call this week. Yeah, I mean, look, the streamer added more than 8.5 million new total global subscribers. That's more than 2.5 million more than what was expected. In all, Netflix has officially topped the 200 million subs and and now ranks with 203.7 worldwide subscribers. Obviously, the first streaming service to top that number. And Netflix added 36.6 million subscribers during 2020, which is a new record, obviously driven by the pandemic and folks trapped at home. Revenue in the fourth quarter was up more than 20 percent, with totaling now 6.64 billion. It's a lot, Dan. You know, what's interesting to me is that the streamer noted that it has more than 500 film and TV titles currently in post-production or preparing to launch, including a massive film slate as Netflix prepares to debut one feature film every week this year and teased even more to come from that. But, you know, the biggest takeaway, at least according to investors, is that Netflix said that it's close to being free cash flow positive. So 
it's it's super interesting. You know, they they spent almost twelve billion dollars a year on content, down two billion from a year ago. Yeah, Wall Street reacted just they were just over the moon. Um, the shares set set a new high, and on Thursday they were up another seventeen percent to nearly six hundred bucks a share. It's it's a big quarter. It's a big year for Netflix. But I think the the biggest piece is that they're almost profitable. They're saying that they don't, that they're going to have cash on hand. Like this is what everyone on wall street has been waiting for Net When is Netflix going to be profitable? When will they be able to get a return on their investment? How much longer can they continue to spend at this clip? Here's your answer. And more than anything, what they seem to be saying is we're not going deeper into debt. More than anything, that seemed to be what the announcement was. Because if you look at the amount of debt that Netflix has accrued, I think I saw someone report that it was in the $15 billion range. And that's insane um so yeah i mean obviously if they're going to be a successful company at a certain point you can't go on forever accruing billions and billions in debt uh there was some talk about stock buybacks and that's a concept that is only barely under my job purview and we are not going to talk about it because it's really it's not what we do for a living uh but Things that they announced did make the the investors pleased. The stock price last time I saw was down closer to $574, I think, which is still up from where it was before all this, but not in the 600 range anymore. And, and I read a couple analytics stories where some people still had skepticism, but there were a lot of people who were pleased about the, uh, the influx of actual non-debt cash. So... Yay, Netflix. I <laughs> And look, the and the content spend will will of course resume. I think a lot of it was driven because down because of the pandemic. So I think with the all of the uncertainty, I think people hit pause on a lot of projects. Like there were a lot of, of shows um, high, some high profile ones, um, or at least high, high budget ones that I was tracking with the, with Netflix that seemed to have fallen by the wayside. Um, but it's also not common. I mean, that, that's not uncommon to see during an uncertain period like this. Um, uh, you know, when you're looking at, you know, all these companies are looking at, can they, f can you film a show that's a big budget genre thing that, that involves a lot of extras? Can you film things like that? And is it worth spending this? Is this going to be a global hit the way a show like Bridgerton has, at least according to Netflix's quote unquote ratings. So yeah, I think that that's the, every company in town is having those kind of conversations and Netflix is not immune. And as we always like to say, Netflix doesn't really give out ratings. They just give out numbers and they give out piecemeal numbers. So we know what these successful shows kind of sound like they are. But we don't really have any perspective on how that differs from less successful shows. But as you say, Bridgerton is a show that Netflix wanted to say was doing well. I believe the faux numbers were 63 million Netflix accounts viewed it, but that's in its first four weeks, which haven't actually passed yet. So it's imaginary numbers with an imaginary it's rating estimates, system. right? <laughs> estimates for how many households will watch at least two minutes of something, which they consider two minutes to be an intent to view like they intend intentionally viewers or subscribers intentionally sought out a show like Bridgerton and said, I am going to watch this. And I am going to push play unless you're like me. And, you know, get, this is where I, I duck and cover on social media where I watched the first 15 minutes and turned it off.
because uh, it just wasn't for me. You you have to get to uh, if if what you're looking for is the uh, the naked sexy time, you have to definitely make it to around episode five and six. Then it's all naked sexy time all the time. Uh, other shows that Netflix wanted to say by their random metrics are successful. Once again, they keep talking about how successful the Queen's Gambit is. Yay, I'm sure. Uh, this was apparently the most watched season of The Crown ever. Um, yay, I'm I'm sure. Uh, they also highlighted numbers, imaginary numbers, for such things as Selena, the series, um, as well as a German drama called Barbarians, which I have literally never heard of. So uh, there's that. Uh, also, Netflix is very bullish on the heist drama Le Pen, which I will talk about in a few minutes in the critics corner, even though it was released 10 days ago and we didn't actually review it, but it's still worth watching. And then a bunch of movies, uh, apparently the midnight sky, the George Clooney astronaut movie, which is like seven different movies at once. Um, Oh, oh, so bad. (laughs) I don't think it's bad. I think that of the seven movies that it is one or two of them are good. Uh, But But as a cohesive one piece of art, Not for me. There's nothing cohesive about it at all. But I did keep finding myself during the movie going briefly. Hey, okay, this is the movie that I kind of like. I'm enjoying up onto a different movie. Ah, good. There's the movie I like coming back. So, yeah, I did that about a a dozen times. Um, But yes, other other things, various Christmas movies did reasonably well. Again, who would know? Um, Yeah. Why are you even giving this at the airtime, Dan? (laughs) It's like these are these are not ratings this is not this doesn't count like stop legitim why are we legitimizing this dan like you're two minutes like 68 million households said we watched two minutes of a show and then maybe turn turned it off like how many had what what tell me the completion rate netflix tell me how many households actually completed watching bridgerton how many member accounts they have this data they have tons of data instead we get Bullshit numbers. I'm sorry. I'm calling a spade a spade. We get bullshit numbers of two minutes of one thing. Like, that's nothing. That's nothing. Give me completion rate. That's what they look at for, for, you know, from everything that I've heard. That's what they look at when they're determining renewals. Obviously, you know, the the creative pitch for season two and the, the expenses. We know that that Netflix shows get really expensive when they get around season four, which is why very few of them make it that far. So it's how how quickly did people complete the entire series? How many of them were there? Give me that. Why aren't we why aren't we demanding that? If we're going to in this new era of accountability and transparency and honesty, give me that. This concludes my TED talk, Dan. We are demanding it right here. And I would like to emphasize that completion rate is also a really icky euphemism for a major plot point in the second half oh, of the Jesus season Christ. of Bridgerton. <laughs> 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 Anyway, I'm going to let you follow that up, Dan. I, I believe I'm going to follow that up. This by is saying, a family show. Uh, the, 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 no, our younger not. viewers will have to ask their parents to explain, <laughs> Mommy, Daddy, what does completion, completion rate, rate mean? <laughs> <laughs> Kids have to learn what completion rate is eventually. Um, okay, enough oh, of this goodness. topic. That's our Netflix discussion for this week. What's next? Up next, Dan, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Number four. Our guest this week is Jack Schaefer, the head writer of Marvel's WandaVision. In addition to her work on the Disney Plus series, she also penned the script for Marvel's highly anticipated feature film, Black Widow. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Jack. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So let's get started. You're credited as the head writer on WandaVision. So what's the difference between a head writer and a showrunner? Or is there one or is this just Marvel speak? I would say I would say it's kind of Marvel speak. Uh, I will say this is my <laughs> strangely my first um, job in TV since I was an assistant way back in whatever year that was. So I'm I'm a feature writer who had been working for Marvel on several features, and Marvel had been doing features and features, 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 and then there was this incredible development of um, of Marvel Studios doing um, series for Disney Plus. Um, so I think when I you know was like enough to book the job. The, the way that Marvel does it is they're, they're using a sort of um, a feature paradigm for, um, for their projects. So I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a Marvel speak. You know, I staffed a room, I ran a room, I was on set, I'm involved in, in post. So um, that's, that's my title. And I also, yeah, I created the, you know, it's a created by, created for television by, um, yeah. Sounds like a showrunner to me. <laughs> Well, given that you hadn't worked in television before, what aspects of the TV process coming away from film required the biggest learning curve for you? I think running a room, I, I um, staffing and running a room was something that I, I hadn't done before. I had, um, as I said, I'd been an assistant and sort of seen rooms and room culture and frankly had been very sort of intimidated by it. It's staffing was the first thing. Um, and I, I, when I, when I got the job, I immediately reached out to a number of showrunner friends of mine and friends that had, had worked in television and, and features. And I got some extraordinarily good advice about staffing and about, about the room culture and room culture that you should aspire to. And I actually, in fact, I hired one of my writers because I, <laughs> he's a, he's a longtime friend of mine. And I asked him over for dinner and was like, oh my God, don't tell anyone I'm saying this to you, but how in the world do I do this job? And he painted a picture of, you know, what he thinks, like some of the best things he's seen, things that he wished, you know, people would do. And it was so sort of, utopian. And I was, and I hired him. Cause I was like, can you, can you just bring that? His name is Chuck Hayward. He's amazing. He's doing a million things. But I was like, I just, I need, I need that vibe in the room, which he did bring. Cause he's wonderful. Um, and one of the best pieces of advice, which I, I, if I had, if I hadn't heard this, I think I would have really fallen flat on my face, but it was that as a showrunner, it's not your job to have the best idea in the room. It's your job to be the keeper of the vision. It was my friend, uh, it was Micah Fitzerman Blue, um, who's an incredible writer in person, who told me that, and he, and and it he's so right. So that that and I had always been the I'd been the only writer in a room all by myself with just a computer, and so this was a very different thing and so much more fun to do it with a group of people. So yeah, I think that's that's what I had to sort of catch up on quickly. 
Yeah, you know, and just getting getting into the creative a little bit, we've heard that Marvel's Kevin Feige has said the classic sitcom setup in WandaVision was something he pitched to you. Can you walk us through what that conversation was and, and how fully formed this idea for WandaVision was when you signed on? Yeah. Um, so, so they, um, I, I heard about it very early on. One of the executives on Black Widow was sort of involved. And so he had sort of talked to me a little bit about it. And so I was sort of hearing sort of murmurs and then, you know, they had, um, it was a lot of, it was a lot of, you know, it was the, the larger idea of Wanda and Vision and sitcoms and sort of sitcom history. And there was a lot of imagery and a lot of sort of notions of wouldn't be cool if, and wouldn't it, if this kind of thing happened, if this kind of thing happened. And, and, you know, what they were missing was a, a unifying story, a sort of, you know, what, what are the, how, how can we assemble all of these cool pieces and, and have a narrative that hangs together? You know, I had a lot of sort of materials to, to look at in formulating my pitch, but then what I brought to them was, um, it was, it was actually the most comprehensive pitch I think I've ever done. It was a, because I essentially had to break the season. I don't think I understood at the time that that's what I was doing. Cause I, I just, I, I was using my feature approach. Um, and I came in and did a full hour pitch. I remember someone like several people had to leave the room because it was so long, which I hoped it wasn't about how boring it was. But, you know, it was a lot of visuals and a, and a lot of sort of mapping out of of what I was thinking. And, and that's sort of like the larger story that I pitched is is what the show ended up being. Well, the the list of classic sitcoms that you're obviously draw, drawing from here, it's presumably a big one. But from what I've seen, people are referring to the same kind of handful of shows. You know, there's I Love Lucy, there's Dick Van Dyke show, there's Bewitched, there's Brady Bunch, etc. Are there specific references that you had in mind that you haven't seen people referring to particular touchstones that that, you know, are maybe a little bit more esoteric, possibly than than, say, the big five? Um, you mean that that made their way into the show or things that the, I was the the inspirations that you were drawing from the touchstones that you were going with? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a lot that that we have that we have not spoken about that are enormous influences on the show because it would give too much away. So I think that all of the the sort of, you know, um, the golden age of, of sitcom, well, there, I mean, there kind of, there is no golden age of sitcom. It's just every wonderful, delicious era of sitcom. All of those, um, pieces are, are very obvious and, and will become more obvious as, as more of the episodes drop. Um, but there's a lot that I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing in the future. Um, because the, yeah, the influences would a little bit give up the, the game, but it's, it's a lot of, there's so many shows right now. So many, there's so much incredible TV content and people people who, um, artists who are, who are pushing the boundaries of what TV can be and what, especially what a limited series can be. Um, so I think truthfully, those, those were the larger influences as we were breaking story. You know, I, I couldn't help but think watching these, you know, we were lucky enough to get the first three episodes, um, screeners. So basically watched all three in one sitting. And I couldn't help but think when I'm watching this, that this is the most broad piece of Marvel that I've seen. 
And it just feels like it, it has something for everyone, for people like me who are not necessarily diehard Marvel fans who don't understand all, all the references. And then, you know, I, I bring up my wife a lot because she is such a super, super superhero person for Marvel, for DC. And so I go to a lot of that stuff and I listen to her talk about and go in the weeds. And I obviously read a lot of, you know, the coverage that we have on various sites, on our site, on so much more about, you know, the mythology and there's this and here's what this twist means for this. And listening to people talk about this show in that regard versus the sitcom regard, I felt like I was watching two totally different shows. And it was just, to me, I, I wonder when you crafted this, was that the intention? Was this to, you know, the idea to make a big broad show that appeals to the Disney loving family, the parents who maybe don't get in the, in the weeds and then the fanboy, you know, people who do like, what was that the, the part of your original pitch for WandaVision? Absolutely. Um, and first of all, thank you so much. Like all, all, hearing all of that is, is, is so gratifying. And I'm, I'm delighted that that's, um, that that's been your experience watching it and, and that of your wife's. Yeah. I mean, I think it was certainly Kevin's design from the beginning. You know, he has that incredible ability to please almost everyone. I mean, it's really a gift. Like he really knows what people want and what will satisfy and how much, how much to sort of dip into this area and how much to dip into this area. But we, it was, it was extremely early on that we were all very united, um, Kevin and, and my producer, Mary and, um, and I, that, that it was, that the sitcom would never be parody. Um, that what we were trying, what we were aspiring to do was to create excellent episodes of sitcoms, um, which was extremely challenging. Especially, I mean, one of the, one of the reasons that one of the ways in which sitcoms are really succeed is, is has to do with the ensemble and has to do with what you know of these people. And so much of the comedy is derived from the fact that you know them all so well. And so we had to sort of cold create this sitcom and have it feel good and feel warm and feel familiar. And I th obviously we have, we have the touchstones of all the visuals, which makes sense. And people can sort of like glom onto in a, in a satisfying way. But then, yeah, there's this much larger story that we're telling. Um, and the, the sort of Easter eggs of it and, and that, that fell into place as we did our work, as we structured the, the, the proper pieces of the story. But in the writer's room, to, to answer your question more clearly, we were constantly operating on multiple levels and we had language for all of that. We had visual language. We had language on the boards. We had we, like the style on the page of, you know, when we were in sort of different modes of storytelling, the actual, you know, we had sort of ways to, to denote that with italics and underlined and bold and that kind of thing. And there was, there was very much a system in place so that, so that we could all keep the story in our heads. And, and also so that, you know, once we hired a director and once there were department heads that everybody could be on the same page throughout. And you talked about the learning curve that you had coming in, having not done television. But it's not just that you hadn't done television, you hadn't done sitcoms. And here you are writing a show that's possibly nine different sitcoms. How did you even know that you could do that? And what were the things that scared you as you looked at each of the different time frames and sitcom styles as you tried to find those voices? Yeah, well, I mean... I think, you know, mo the majority of my work has been sort of genre mashup. That's always what really excites me and and really is is what I want to be doing. I want I want the collision of of 
expectations, really. And I, the, you know, I, I, I wrote a, a feature that's a remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels called The Hustle that I had a wonderful time on and I'm very proud of. But that's really the outlier in my career. Everything else that I've done has been, um, yeah, almost always a, a mashup of different genre and influences. And, and, um, and so, and I, you know, I did theater in college and, and the sitcoms to me, they feel so they're, they're so much like plays. So, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm known uh, prior to this, I was known kind of as a comedy writer. So I was like, oh, I can do all of that. I can do all that. But to answer your question about what scared me when I sat down to write the pilot was, was really like it was a very dark, bleak moment because, you know, we had mapped everything. The episodes had been assigned. You know, we always, from my pitch, we always knew where we were going. Like none of that was in question. I had a very strong sense from the beginning of what the tone was. Like I knew how it was all going to sort of lay down. But but writing that pilot and knowing that, the, I mean, three quarters of it is is just a sitcom and it's a Dick Van Dyke sitcom. I mean, those are the best, those people were the best of the best of the best writing and, and filming, you know, 22 to 24 episodes a season for multiple seasons. I mean, that's insanity. Uh, It's insanity to me. I don't even know. So I actually, when I, the the week that I was supposed to write the pilot, um, that I, the first day I sort of floundered and realized I didn't have the goods to do it. And then I called in, um, three of the writers and was like, okay, clearly I'm missing, <laughs> I'm missing basically the whole, I mean, it's aired now so I can talk about it, but the, the whole, like the hearts dinner and that confusion, I was missing that whole piece. Like we knew we wanted them in the kitchen and we knew we wanted, you know, him go, to go to work. And the whole work piece was very, a really early discovery. Like all of that, like wh- what the scenes were was all clear, but like how to make it, how to get sitcom style intrigue. Oh my God. So they, so they came in and they saved me and we came up with something. They had a million ideas and I picked sort of one that made sense and made it work. And, um, yeah. And then, and then I think, you know, I think it was fun on the page, but Paul and Lizzie and Catherine and Tiana made it come to life in a way that is, is more, um, buoyant than I could have imagined. Yeah, and you know, watching this obviously with the with the pilot, you get this full sitcom thing, and then at the very tail end, here's a hint that there is this much larger thing going on outside of this sitcom world. With nine episodes, you know, how much are these bits and pieces that you're getting part of the larger story that you're doing, and what kind of feedback did you have from from Kevin about the pacing of the larger mythology and how much you're doling out, how quickly and how soon? Because obviously, you've only got nine episodes, and they're all short. Yeah, that was, that was always a question. I mean, we, it was, it was mapped out pretty thoroughly early on. It wasn't, it wasn't a situation. I mean, I, as I said, I, you know, when I, when I first got the job, I reached out for advice and, and a lot of the people that I spoke to were like, you know, the pilot is so important because you're finding the voices and you're finding the story. And that just does not apply to us because that it's not, that's not what that is. I mean, like, obviously these, these characters have existed so much of the mythology exists. And then we had, it was all mapped out like a, like a, um, a feature. So uh, Kevin to his credit, and, and it's one of the reasons that I love working for him is he, he referred to it as like playing chicken with the audience. (laughs) You know, he really wanted to see how long we could hang on to it. Um, so, and, and there was a lot of discussion about like how long we could hang on to black and white because we knew we would go to color. Like that was always a piece that's, you know, involved in the larger story. And we, um, and 
so so I, I it was really wonderful that he allowed us to to really sink into the to the sitcom and to really delay the gratification and 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 I mean that put the, obviously put even more of a burden on us that the that the sitcom stuff had to be good. Um, we you know we knew we when we were like putting the the show together we had, we knew sort of what a lot of what the really big moments would be. Um, and they're, they're mapped out and, um, and we wanted, I wanted to start small. Um, and so that, that choking bit, I remember the day that, that, that it sort of occurred to me, like, and it, it was so the idea of it was so delicious that like in a Marvel property, can you make a human being choking like horribly, like just sort of macabre and, and meaningful and like have the stakes feel as high as, you know, as Thanos snapping away half the universe. Um, I don't know if we, (laughs) it's actually what it is, but it, it, um, the, the goal was always to sort of lull the, and we, when we shot it on the day with the, with the live audience, um, it was, it was so satisfying and validating because they, you know, they had sort of been lulled into the sitcom thing. And then when that moment happened, you could hear a pin drop. Um, so uh, to answer your question, I mean, I, I, Kevin was a hundred percent in for doling it out slowly. And, and, and I think he actually also has a lot of faith in the fans and in the Marvel audience that, you know, they're, they're so interested in paying attention and they know they'll be rewarded. Um, so, so yeah, so we, we start slow on this show. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the filming in front of the audience because yeah, you know, I thought we've... that was a laugh track. No, <laughs> not the first one. No, the first one was live. But it's it's such an interesting thing because we're in LA and so we have a sense of how sitcom audiences come together and what the expectations are from audiences going into a sitcom. Sometimes they know exactly the show they're going into. Sometimes they just know it's a show that's a little bit like dot dot dot. How did you? brief the audience for what they were about to experience and what was your sense of how quickly they figured out or didn't figure out what it was that was happening in front of them? Well, so one of the things that was wonderful about that audience is it was, it was mostly a friends and family audience. Um, so my parents were there. Um, my husband was there. Some dear friends were there. Um, and they also were encouraged to dress 1950s theme. Um, so there was this lovely, celebratory party, you know, atmosphere to the whole thing. Um, I mean, anytime you ask people to be in costume, they feel like they're part of something. And, you know, and it was a lot of parents, a lot of aunts and grandparents. And so, and, and that was part of the design. I mean, it was very early on in the room that Mary and I were like, what, what if we did this in front of, like, could we possibly do this in front of a live studio audience? And we didn't know, we felt like a pipe dream at the time. And, and we were like, what if we did it for all of them? And (laughs) that was never gonna happen. But, um, but it felt, it, it, I think that, so people were primed because they were already participating and they already knew the sort of milieu of, you know, what they were stepping into. And the set was so, Mark Worthington's set was just so incredibly glorious. And it's obviously in real life in color, which is a whole other piece to it. So I think people came ready, you know, with smiles on their faces already. And I think a lot of the people in the audience didn't know much about Marvel because again, friends and family, parents, that kind of thing. Um, 
So it, again, put the pressure on us that it had to be a good show. And it's such a physical that, you know, the open, both the first two episodes are so physical, especially for Paul and Lizzie. They're like, it's, it's incredibly um, physical comedic performances and they're all over the set. And yeah, like I said, it felt very much like a play. Um, I think people were ultimately confused and, and it was a, it was a, you know, a really big soundstage. So it didn't have the intimacy, I think, of what a normal sitcom taping would be like. Um, but it just, I think for everyone, it just really felt like a treat. And we were like warming up the audience in between because we had to like reset. There was a lot of like practical effects with all of the, you know, the dinner and the kitchen stuff. And um, so, you know, I was out there with a microphone, like, and my, a couple of my writers were there. And so I was, you know, trying to heckle my writers in the audience. It was, it was just a really, really epic day. It was great. So in, in terms of the sitcom stuff, I want to, you know, lean back into that for a second, but um, you, you've, each episode almost feels like you're tackling each decade. Is that something that will continue throughout the season, throughout the nine episodes and possibly a second season? Or are there specific shows that you're doing or, or, or is each episode kind of more reflective of the decade itself in sitcom history? Um, well, I mean, the, you know, as you've seen in the first two episodes, those are pretty centered. Um, and, um, and as it, as the show moves forward, there are a lot more surprises in store. Um, and that's my cheeky way of not answering your question. <laughs> I'm so sorry. The, the Marvel answer, yes. We knew we were going to get a, at least a few I of those. I know, um, I know. It's the worst. <laughs> yeah. But let's talk about a little bit about the commercials then. You know, the, the, the interludes are so great and have so many nods to even things like the non, the casual Marvel fan like me will notice Hydra, Tony Stark, et cetera. How much will those influence the, the larger story that's still to come? Um, you know, the commercials were... Uh, part of our sort of storytelling extremely early on and have been such, it was, it was so incredibly fun to, to do those. And I think, as you say, the sort of the, the casual Marvel fan, I, I, I feel like the commercials are, are very accessible in that way, but because they're so true to the era, they also, for anyone who doesn't know a single thing about Marvel, they can, they just can exist as more color to the story. Um, but yeah, you'll, they, they are, um, they're important. You'll, you'll see where they go. <laughs> You've mentioned that, you know, you start off with these, with these two characters who audiences do know and who audiences have met over the course of many movies, but this is not really the Wanda and the vision that we know from the movies. So as you approach them in sitcom form, what kind of kernels of the characters do you have to keep intact so that they're recognizable as those two characters? And then what latitude did you have to, I guess, find what Elizabeth and Paul's strengths were and then steer the characters in those directions for this purpose? That is such an excellent question. I could spend days talking about that. Um, it, it was such a bizarre task to write for these characters inside of a sitcom world. It was really weird and very scary. Their together screen time in the MCU is surprisingly short. So, you know, when when you work on a when you're lucky enough to work on a Marvel property, they can put sort of supercuts together for you so you don't have to like scroll through every single movie. And and so the supercut of them, you're like, but that's it. Like I but I felt so much with them. So so we had, you know, these very sort of tiny moments and 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 impactful scenes to go from. And, to you know, your question is such a good one about what we were sort of hanging on to. Um, we were really trying to to hold on to sort of the elemental 
um, pieces of these of these two characters. And and for Vision, there well, I would say the thing that they both have is there's sort of there's like a purity of spirit to both of them, which for me is is what I attribute to their connection. Is there's with both of them, you know, they're they're outsiders. Um, they have very unusual backgrounds. They're very solitary. Um, Vision, you know, he sees the world in this beautiful, almost childlike way. And even though Wanda has so much pain in her past, there there is kind of always like a hopefulness with her. And he he always pulls that out of her, which is really just quite sweet and, and moving. So we were sort of hanging on to, first and foremost, what their connection is, what the nature of their connection is. And it actually, it was great for sitcom because the early sitcoms especially are so... Um, uh, guileless, do you know what I mean? And and there's there's like an innocence to their uh, their sort of soulmate togetherness. So we hung on to that, and then um, and then you know then there was the the gag of like they're trying to pass in in society and not be seen for their superhero stuff. So that that was you know kind of easy. And then and then writing for Paul and Lizzie. It was it was very easy to write for Paul because he's done a lot of comedy and I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of both of them. But like, you know, Knight's Tale, Wimbledon, these are movies I love. And I I even, you know, I had met him because we pitched to him, you know, the whole thing, but I didn't know him. I do now. He's wonderful. Um, but the writing for him before I knew him. I could hear his voice. It was like he was talking in my head. I was, you know, it was, there was a rhythm there that was, um, that came easily. Um, Lizzie was much harder because I didn't have anything to look to for her comedy chops. Um, and cause that's not what she's done. She's done all this incredible dramatic work. Um, so it, 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 she was a little bit more of a cipher. Wanda's voice was a little, a little harder to find, but Lizzie as a performer, is so meticulous and so present and all about her preparation. And she has given the most incredible technical performance. And she became such a student of these shows. Um, I, I continue to be amazed by, by both of their work now that I sort of see it a little bit as, as a distance, at a distance. Um, but it, it was... It was it was a real discovery once we all started working together, like how she was just able to put on that Laura Petrie, Petrie, um, you know, Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitch. She just she just wore it like a costume. It was amazing. How often did you give them that kind of specific reference point, whether it's Elizabeth Montgomery or like in the second episode when Vision gets drunk? Does it say he's Peter O'Toole drunk or is that just what Paul Bettany does naturally in that case? Yeah, it it didn't say that. It was always in my mind. And then he naturally did it. Um, so, I, I mean, we watched we we watched a lot of sitcoms together. Matt had them like he did this like sort of sitcom boot camp, which for me, like we had done that with the writers and then, you know, did it again with the actors. And then they, they really did their homework, um, on their own. And, and I, I, you know, I know Matt had a lot of conversations with them about like the specific touchstones. I mean, I think they're, they both were doing amalgamations of a lot of these different, um, performers. And then, you know, the shifts throughout the era are with both of them are so nuanced. Um, I really, I'm yeah, I just I feel so lucky to have had these two performers in these roles. Well, one thing I do want to talk about is WandaVision's place in the larger MCU. One thing that obviously with that Kevin is doing that his predecessor, Jeff Loeb, didn't do so much on the TV side is really interconnecting these TV shows with the the cinematic universe. So 
that that would imply that you know the place that you need th this show to wind up going at the end of nine episodes. And for you as a storyteller, is it helpful to know that this is where you need to get this season, especially coming in as a first time head writer slash showrunner? Yeah, I mean, I all of the work that I've done at Marvel you know, exists in a space that's inter interconnected with other stories. Um, and I have found that to be so, so, first of all, just that the access to the other writers and directors and storytellers uh, and executives, especially the producers at Marvel, who are also extraordinary, um, I, I, to feel like you're an important piece of a larger puzzle is, is really exciting. I mean, there's, there are occasionally times where it's kind of restrictive and you get, you, you hatch a really exciting idea that, you know, involves a character from the comics or a character from the MCU and you pitch it and then you're met with, oh no, we're using that in this, you know, there's occasionally that kind of thing, which is, which is like frustrating, but there's so much to go around that, that there's always, there's always another character, or another storyline or something that you can sort of like shunt in and get the same kind of juice out of. But I, you know, I was really surprised because I, you know, I'd done a lot of original material before this and my personal way of working, it's like I was given an enormous amount of freedom inside of my own prescribed sandbox. And that is a way that I like to work, it turns out. Um, so, and also I do think that while Kevin and, and the executives at Marvel, like, Obviously, there's a there's a vision for all of these things. They always want each property to stand on its own two feet, um, and that's always the priority. So that was always, you know, what I was striving for and what my team was striving for to to make sure that this exists on its own, and then also has you know the the pieces that need to interconnect. When it comes to those pieces, how do you know which ones you're actually allowed to play with? I mean, based on press releases, we know that Randall Park appears at some point in this. We know that Kat Dennings appears at some point in this. Do you say, can I have these characters? I have an idea for them. Or does someone say, here, here are two supporting characters we need to use later. You got them. Use them. Yeah, I mean, I would. So so Randall and Kat were suggestions that I was like. 100% yes is my answer to that suggestion. Um, so, and that's sort of what I've seen on the other properties is it's like, you know, they at Marvel have ideas of, you know, where they can put different characters and different storylines. And it doesn't, that doesn't always work out. That's not always how it is. Um, I mean, I would say that most of the wonderful players in the MCU stable, if they get the call, they're going to show up because they're excited to. But yeah, it's sort of like, it starts as a general idea and then and then we see if we can make it work. It just feels like to me, like from a creative point of view, that there's still something kind of odd about that. Like in my mind, I imagine someone bringing you a dossier and kneeling before you and saying, here is Tayana Paris. You get to be the first one to introduce her there, you know, sort of bestowing it upon you. Does it does it feel like that? There's no kneeling. Um, OK, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, it it doesn't feel well. I mean, it feels like th that in the way that like I feel lucky. I've felt lucky, um, and I also I can't think of a situation where something was presented to me on any of the properties I worked on where I was like, oh man, now I'm saddled with that. Like that isn't a thing. It I I have found it to, it it sparks more ideas. Um, 
And, and yeah, I mean, I think the only, the only sort of like, um, disappointments are when, you know, things have to get cut for whatever reason. Um, the, the, the sort of more of, you know, try this out, try this out, you know, or can, does this work in, can we see this working in? Like that's, it's, it's great. And all with Tiana, I mean, Tiana's phenomenal. Um, but with Monica Rambeau, you know, I had been lucky enough to work on, um, uh, Captain Marvel and worked on the scene, her scenes, young Monica Rambeau. So, I mean, like that, that was so exciting. I'm like, what an unusual circumstance for a writer to work on one property and be writing the child version and then suddenly to be on another property and writing the adult version. I, there was, there was no way I wasn't going to be in for that. And also just Monica Rambeau is the coolest character. (laughs) Um, one thing that I do want to single out is, you know, WandaVision is the first Marvel show for Disney plus but it wasn't designed to be. Obviously, COVID changed so much. Falcon and Winter Soldier was supposed to have been out already. Obviously, Black Widow was supposed to premiere theatrically. But I wonder, how did the production delays impact how WandaVision would have fit in with a larger MCU had, you know, had things gone according to plan? And, and, did, and obviously, because they didn't, how much did it change what you guys ultimately did? Did you have to go back and do different things or rework things? Um, you know, the, the, the COVID delay, um, ended up for the most part being, a like a, a gift in terms of the storytelling. We, you know, we had to go on hiatus for a while and it gave us an opportunity. We, you know, we had a, we had a chunk left, um, to do, and it gave us an opportunity to look at that reassess. I got to revise, I got to make a lot of things better. Um, you know, the COVID restrictions made certain sequences hard to film, but the production did an incredible job overcoming, um, those obstacles. As far as, you know, the order at which we're coming out, I mean, we were, we, when we, when the room was up and running, we were in the building with Falcon and Winter Soldier, that writer's room and the Loki writer's room. And we were all running at the same time. And they're, you know, they're wonderful people. Those, um, head writers are terrific people. Um, and there was a real sort of like team spirit that I felt to all of that. Um, but it, it, there was, you know, we, at the time we had a sense of what the intended order was, but we were, it was all going at the same same time. So it, it was only, you know, it, it was, so anyway, this, this sort of change, um, it didn't actually surprise me too much. And I think it ended up working very nicely for what, what the content of our show is, the type of show, um, that we're premiering. And it does feel like, you know, people have an appetite for, for this kind of show right at this very moment. So I think it worked out and, uh, there's there's some sort of there's an amount of you know jockeying and repositioning and the, a lot of that didn't actually affect our show and my work directly but I mean this is not their first rodeo like <laughs> they've been doing this for so long Kevin's been doing this so well for so long and and he is so deft at there's always there's always space for I think. I think that what he's always leaving space for is a better idea, but that space also that's left is for course correcting should it need to happen. Um, so I think there's been challenges for Marvel on this, but it's, it's, it's working out beautifully from where I'm sitting. Well, when it comes to that course correcting thing, um, the Marvel movies have all over the years had the time built in for, as you say, re- for reshoots, for sort of little tweaks and changes of directions. How much of that did you guys have to or get to do? 
Well, the, the schedule just kind of went a little bananas because of COVID. Um, I think we we had, and this is me coming from independent film, like we had the time that we needed in order to do the job. And that's <laughs> that's that's what we got. And, and we're proud of it. But did you have to rework any scenes because there were properties that didn't actually come out in terms of the connectivity of it all? I don't think I can answer that. Sorry, 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 sorry. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in, in the grand scheme of things, how does a potential second season of WandaVision fit in? I mean, how far in, in advance do you have this ma- mapped out and do you know where it connects? Like, would season two hypothetically come out after the next Doctor Strange movie? Do you want to talk about the Dodgers? <laughs> is of course leslie would would frankly probably much rather talk about the dodgers and she wants to talk about wandavision too but if you if you've got dodgers conversations you want to talk leslie is here for that so okay where do you fall on trevor ballard he's Uh, great dazzling uh but but i mean just Let, let's break it down a little slower then i'm sorry that was the best non-answer i've ever heard in my career uh but do you have you mentioned limited series, you know, that seeing some of the great things that, that are being done in the TV industry in the limited series space is WandaVision envisioned as a limited series or do you have plans for a second season? Um, I, I cannot talk about um, second season and, 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 and actually that really fits in, I think, with just the sort of Marvel philosophy is there's always a sort of. Kevin is so great at coming out and being like, here's what's happening to a point. You know what I mean? Like here is, here is the field and this is where the field drops off. And I, you know, second season is, it's not something that that can be discussed. That's, that's on the field quite yet. Well, that, that said, do you have, what can you say about the, the, how season one ends? Is it, does it feel like a complete story? I, well, you know, it was always the design with, um, with the, these shows that they feel like a, you know, a run of a comic. So in that way, it feels very, very complete, which, which I feel like is, it's a, it's a, um, an emotional, um, completion, um, that I, I stand by and feel great about and was, and was always very much baked in. And it was so exciting to, to shoot and, and like, and see it sort of happen the way we had always envisioned it. And I think again, Paul and Lizzie, they have such incredible chemistry and such a great working relationship. And, um, and so it, it, um, the conclusion of this, of this show feels very right for the story that we're telling. And then like any Marvel property, it, uh, it spins off into, into something else like, like they all do in, in their ways. Well, as sort of a different spin within the same question, do you feel like, you know, because this this show is to some degree kind of it's it's a game because you're playing around with the with the sitcom structures and the formats. Do you feel like you've played the games you want to play with classic sitcoms within these nine episodes? Or do you still have classic sitcoms in your mind that you're like, ah, I've got a full episode of WandaVision that I know is based around I don't know what friends bad sitcom friends exactly or something. I haven't asked myself that question. I, I mean, it, it feels. Um, uh, I just I'm I'm so proud of the work that's been done on the show, and and it it and I'm so excited. I it still feels like 
my focus right now is like, I can't wait for fans to see where it goes. You know, I can't like that. It's so exciting to know that there are, there are seven Fridays left of people, you know, devouring what we've done. And so that, that's really where my mind is at right now. I mean, of course, like I have, I have, I have fantasies about all of the Marvel characters, not in a weird way, in a way of like, what are the weirdest (laughs) situations that they can all be in? But yeah, I, I'm just so excited for everyone to, to see where the show goes. How much monitoring did you do of Twitter last week, um, seeing what reactions were and what and what reactions within fan confusion most amused you? Yeah, the um, I mean, I'm embarrassed. I should be like oh, Twitter. What? I don't look at Twitter. Um, I do not have my own Twitter, um, but I have found a way to look at the Twitter without my own account. It's been so fun, mostly just because it's all like everything is just indicative of fan engagement and that's all you really want ever is for people to care and be interested. Um, the theorizing is amazing. The fans are so smart and so dedicated and they come up with such, you know, amazing notions. Um, a lot of it is accurate. A lot of it is not. Um, there's a lot that's very amusing. There's a lot, there's not a lot. There are a few things here and there that I'm like, Oh, I didn't mean that, but that's really smart. I'm just going to go ahead and be like, I meant that. <laughs> and with the, you know, the writers, we have a, um, uh, we do a lot of sending of the memes and the tweets to each other for our own internal um, enjoyment. And that's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I did want to ask, obviously, as, as um, someone who wrote Black Widow, it's been bumped a couple times from the theatrical release, obviously, because of COVID, still slated to debut theatrically in May. Uh, what level of conversations have there been about launching on Disney Plus and where do you fall in the discussion, especially seeing what's happening with with HBO Max and, and Warner Media? I am not involved in, in any of those conversations. Those are those are super high up, very fancy, like gilded halls and columns and things and rooms with fountains that I'm and I'm not in those rooms. Um, so I have I have no information. This is a great question because I don't there's no lying. I have no information on that. <laughs> but but for you as some, as a screenwriter and now showrunner, where do you fall on on that discussion? Would you like to see Black Widow out where we're, we're were Marvel fans who have it, you know, before WandaVision were without, didn't have any new content for all of 2020. But would you like to see that Black Widow at least re- released on Disney Plus in some form or another before it, its theatrical debut, even if it's for an upcharge like Mulan? Right, right, right. Um, I mean, I've, I've been fascinated by how the industry has handled this current um, I mean, the you know, the crisis of COVID, but but the enormous ripple effects inside of our industry. And I think there's been a lot of ingenuity and I think there's been a lot of great choices. Personally, as a fan, I like to see things in the theater. Um, and so, you know, if if we are coming out of this as we hope we are, you know, I'd like to see Black Widow on the big screen. I think, again, I trust Kevin and, and Lou and Victoria, who are, um, the wonderful people that work with him, like their, their stewardship of what project belongs where I, I trust that. Um, and, and I think, I think, you know, fans were deprived this past year and that's a shame, but like everybody feels so great today and we've got the show and there's so much, so much, so much coming down, um, the pipe. So, um, I think I know that fans will be happy. Um, you know, meanwhile, you know, Black Widow is, of course, a prequel and kicks off phase four of the MCU. And you've cast a rising star like like 
like uh, Florence Pugh, who promises that this movie is in fact introducing an important new face of the MCU. How much are you thinking about the potential for 10 years of this character with this actress when you're writing a character? When you're writing this character, well, so I, I, when they cast Florence, who is incredible, um, I had moved on to WandaVision at that point, so I wasn't, I wasn't with the project at that time. Um, when, uh, you know, when I was writing um, for that character, I mean, that is always just really exciting—the idea of of um, launching, you know, a new face and that particular property you know, all the women involved in that project are really exciting, both the actresses and the characters. Um, so it's just, it, it was, it made me feel like a badass all the time when I was writing it. I'm like, I'm super tough, ding, 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 on the keyboard. <laughs> well, we know that you are, as it were, pinballing between various Marvel projects, and I assume that's busy business. So we like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? Oh, oh I love this question. Um, okay. So most recently, um, I, I mean, I, I, my favorite thing recently was I may destroy you. I, I, I don't have the words to describe how special and important and wonderful that show is. I've also really loved Ted Lasso. I feel like definitely the thing that we need in the troubled times. I've, I've gone back to the West wing and been uh, like rewatching those seasons as a, as an antidote to other parts of our troubled times. And what else can I say? I've, I've been a little bit on like a, like a 90s movie bender. We watched Heat the other night and, and I've, I've been watching a lot of sort of like Hunt for Red October and Die Hard and that kind of thing. But I do that a lot. That's nothing new. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jack. We appreciate it. Oh, my Thanks, pleasure. Jack. This has been so fun. Thank you. The first three episodes of WandaVision are now available on Disney+. Plus. New episodes premiere every Friday. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Losing Alice on Apple, Hulu's The Sister, Blown Away on Netflix, Bridge and Tunnel on Epics, Resident Alien makes its debut on Sci-Fi. That one's been around a long time. Painting with John on HBO, and Snowpiercer returns for its second season on TNT. Dan, what you got? What's what's worth tuning in? What's worth tuning in for? A little bit tough. Um, in that case, what's worth tuning in for? I'm going to start then with uh, with a two week old review of of Le Pan on uh, on Netflix. The only the first five episodes of the ten episode first season are available thus far, but it is just. It's just really fun. It's really fun. It's really stylish. It is. It's a heist thriller. It's. Uh, it stars Omar Sy. If people do not know who he is, he is a he is a true star. You you can watch five minutes of this and you will go, damn, that is a person I would like to watch in future TVs and movies. Largely directed, or a couple episodes by Louis Leterrier, uh, who did The Transporter, who did uh, Netflix's much too quickly canceled Dark Crystal reboot series. Uh, he is a very, very talented director of a certain type, and this is right in his wheelhouse. It you know we we talk about sort of travel shows as being getaways to foreign lands, and this is definitely like spending a few hours in Paris. And it is it is really a lot of fun. It is only five episodes thus far. They all contain cliffhangers, twists and turns. And based on where things end at the end of the fifth episode, I am very much looking forward to the 
second half of the season. Um, but that already premiered, so you might have already watched it. The the Netflix algorithm has been pushing it. But guess what? There's not a lot of other exciting stuff. Uh, Painting with John premieres tonight on HBO. That's Friday night. It's going into the late night Friday slot that HBO kind of puts quirky oddities. And one of the quirky oddities that filled that spot before was How To With John Wilson, which made my top 10. And this is similar to that. It's similar to also Netflix's Pretend It's a City, which I praised very highly. So it's basically... It's John Lurie, who you might know either as a jazz musician and composer, he did the Get Shorty score, um, or as a character actor, he did several Jim Jarmusch movies, or as the host of Fishing with John, which aired, God, aired like 30 years ago at this point, 28, 29 years ago. Crazy how long ago that show was. Um, and it's his version of a Bob Ross painting show where he begins by saying that Bob Ross lied, that not everyone can paint. And so he doesn't really give instruction on how to paint, but you watch him paint. And there are a lot of beautiful close-ups of brush technique and all of that, while he tells personal anecdotes, does weird, quirky things, like there's a running joke where he's trying to get a drone shot to start the uh, each episode of the show. He wants a drone shot above his beautiful Caribbean island forest home. But the problem is he's very bad with the drone and keeps crashing it. It's vaguely amusing. Uh, yeah, it, it had some myopic things about it that annoyed me. And I'm beginning to feel as if this is a genre that is a very white, very privileged genre. And it would be nice to get other voices and perspectives. But I still did like painting with John. Um, among these other things, man, I... I reviewed Bridge and Tunnel for us. It's it's a new TV series from Edward Burns. Uh, he of the Brothers McMullen, not to be confused with the Edward Burns who worked with David Simon on The Wire and stuff. It's a coming of age Long Island story set in the 80s. And it's not awful. It's just really, really padded and really, really forgettable. I barely remember it at all. But again, it's not awful. It's It's got a little bit of charmingness to it. Just as I said in my review, I would watch an 85-minute movie version rather than a weekly 30-minute version. And Resident Alien, which, as you say, has been around forever. We had a press tour panel with this one, I guess it was last January, um, but who knows anymore uh, about anything. Uh, it is a good vehicle for Alan Tudyk and so it's got that going for it. I'm just not really sure what it is. The The premise is an alien is disguising himself and pretending to be a doctor in a small Colorado town. It's it's a little bit like Eureka, um, but it was created from a Dark Horse comic series by a Family Guy veteran. And so there are these really uncomfortable, awkward, really lowbrow humorous bits, none of which are funny. So it's... It's an hour-long show that feels like it's trying to be too lowbrow funny to really be a drama, and that definitely isn't funny enough to be a comedy, and so I'm not really sure, but I've watched a couple episodes of it, and I am curious, and I will review it at THR next week, and so if it sort of settles on what it is, it could be okay. And so, yeah, that's that's a lot of options. None of them are rapturous raves. Everyone should watch Le Pen. Some people should watch Painting with John. And um, maybe other people can just relish the quiet 
of a of a unchaotic world, except unfortunately, there's still plenty of chaos. So, oh, well. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, just write a little brief review thing. It helps move up search engines and whatnot. We're always on Twitter, and we love your feedback, positive and even occasionally negative. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.